0: Because right now in our schools, the, idea, the ideas that we saw in social identity theory, they're on display. But not as a, a deterrent to hate and division, it's as an accelerant. Our educational leaders are pouring gasoline where water should be. And the gasoline I'm referring to is critical race theory. Critical race theory divides students by skin color. It attempts to convince them that membership in a particular racial group Is the single greatest way to know the essence of a person. It says your membership in a racial group is the key to your identity. And if you're a white student, you're told that your identity is that of oppressor and racist. Even if you don't say racist words or do racist deeds or think racist thoughts, critical race theory still claims that you are unconsciously racist. Uh, Critical race theory teaches certain things to white students. Let me just Recap by telling you what critical race theory teaches black students. It teaches that you are an oppressed minority. And it says that you're a victim of societal forces outside your power. You're told that you have less personal agency than others. And you're also taught that any white student, someone you thought was a friend, may be unconsciously a racist. So critical race theory has now infiltrated every board in in Canada and in many boards in the United States, although I will say that at last count, 35 states are outlawing it. In Canada, we've been very slow to catch up.
1: I am so honoured to introduce you to Dr. David Haskell this evening. David is a respected professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, where his research examines cultural trends. Operating primarily within the field of sociology of religion, as well as communication studies, his teaching and research focuses on religion and media in Canada. He has studied the tensions between conservatives and the country's cultural elites and has used his skills to expose false claims made by today's progressives. Outside his job at the university, David leads a Parents Rights in Education group in the Kitchener-Waterloo region. He is an active member of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship and serves as an advisor to various conservative think tanks. He has also enjoyed careers as a journalist, high school teacher, professional musician, motivational speaker, and TV reporter. Will you please all help me welcome Dr. David Haskell? Welcome to the Empower Hour.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, and I, I want to also, I saw in the chat that there are a number of people joining us from the U.S. and um, those would be my uh, my brethren in FAIR. So Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I, I am a chapter leader of FAIR in Waterloo Region, and I think that a number of the my FAIR colleagues are here tonight. So welcoming them as well. So lovely. And it's my first time here on Action for Canada and the Empower Hour. Tanya, thanks for having me. Uh, this is our first time uh, with each other ever.
2: It is. Yeah, we've only chatted via email and on text. So it's just a pleasure to meet you sort of in the person here on Zoom. And uh, my apologies. sometimes those these uh, weekly updates go out separately from the Empower Hour. But this is a huge topic tonight. And, uh, you know, people are so used to being brainwashed by the government that if we're victimizing a certain group, we got to go along with that narrative. And so that's why I really look forward to the information that you're going to share with us tonight to hope to bring a little unity and peace and uh, all in the right direction, Dr. David. So I'm just going to hand the floor over to you.
0: Fantastic. And uh, I'll, I'll let people know that I'm going to be talking for probably about a half hour. And I, and for many of us, I think that we know something about critical race theory. We know something about anti-racism education. And I was, I was putting together this presentation as I was thinking about it. I thought, okay, I want to make sure I, I bring some fresh ideas to this. <clears throat> now, that's not to say that I won't say some things that you already know, but hopefully I'll I'll hit on some new bits of information that'll make it easier to, to think about this or give you the words that you didn't have. And for a start, for example, uh, I want to talk about a story. So my presentation tonight is going to be about the damage done by critical race theory in our kids' schools. But I'm going to get to the meat of that discussion in a roundabout way. You see, first I'm going to review some history. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll mention the social scientific research that is really important. This program is called the Empowerment Hour or Empower Hour. So I want to empower you with with knowledge and research. So as I say, I'm setting the table right now uh, before I lay down the main course, and I'll do that by way of telling this story. So on April 5th, back in 1968, one of the most famous psychological Uh, psychological experiments concerning racism was conducted by a grade three teacher living in a small town in Iowa. And that teacher was Jane Elliott. Now, the day before her experiment was April 4th, 1968, and Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot. In the wake of that tragedy, Elliott decided to teach her students about the negative effects of bigotry, Now, bigotry, let's just make sure we're all on the same page, is defined as the unreasonable or unfounded disliking of a person or people based on their membership in a particular group. But Jane Elliott, the teacher, wasn't going to provide a definition on the chalkboard to make her point. Instead, what she wanted to do was have her students, her grade three class, enact the meaning of bigotry. So she divided her class according to eye color, with the blue-eyed children separated from those with the brown or hazel eyes. And then Jane Elliott, the teacher, explained. She said people with darker eyes, brown or hazel, are better than people with blue eyes. And to get her students to believe her, she said that her claim was based on the science. She said that science showed that dark dark eye color was caused by a chemical called melanin, which is true. But then she went further. She said the science also showed that melanin caused intelligence and self-control. And therefore, darker eyes signaled a smarter, more well-behaved person. Well, then after making the case that blue-eyed children were inferior, Elliot proceeded to give the dark-eyed kids special privileges and also some praise throughout the day. Now, as you'd expect, the children internalized, <clears throat> excuse me, internalized the message that their authority figure was sending. Uh, Despite having almost identical uh, ethnic, uh, cultural, and socioeconomic traits with their classmates, the dark-eyed kids, the dark-eyed group, came to see themselves as the better group. And their behavior toward the blue-eyed classmates became harsh and even degrading. Uh, Many of the blue-eyed kids began to lose their drive, and they got depressed. Now, some some of the blue-eyed kids became self-deprecating and subservient. They wanted to curry favor. And they they did so by lowering their own status. And what I find so fascinating about Elliot's experiment is this. Even though she wasn't a trained psychologist, she was able to capture all of the key ideas that would come to form social identity theory. And she did that years before the theory was published. The full version of social identity theory didn't appear until about a decade later at the end of the 1970s. Henry Tajfel, he was at the University of Bristol, came up with the theory. Now, if you've studied psychology, you'll know that social identity theory, it takes empirical research about group interaction and then it boils it down pulls out the themes, and then it explains how prejudice can be manufactured. The theory, in large part, describes what Elliot observed in her grade three classroom. So let me go into what the theory says. And again, my hope tonight is to give you some new ways of expressing what we're seeing in our school system. So here's the theory of social identity. First of all, the theory insists that people who are... I'm sorry, it it insists that people are not naturally inclined to bigotry, but they can be taught to be bigots. So according to the theory, the first step in manufacturing this bigotry is to have an authority figure divide whatever population, it's a classroom or a country, into two distinct groups. The division has to focus on some identifiable difference, but the difference doesn't have to be significant. That's what's very interesting about this theory. This difference can be something as inconsequential as eye color, or it could even be the hockey team that you support. But the difference has to be made to seem important. In fact, to create the right conditions for bigotry, the difference between the groups must be exaggerated. For example, uh, in our own context, in terms of exaggeration, It would be incredibly harmful if the mainstream media were to repeatedly report false, exaggerated information about racial tensions because that exaggeration is key to manufacturing bigotry. Of course, you know that I'm being tongue in cheek here because that's exactly what the media does. Now, related to the theory again, similarities between groups, even if they're more numerous and and they actually are significant. Well, those are downplayed or ignored. The insignificant differences are played up. The real, the many uh, ways that people are similar are downplayed. So, hostility and bigotry is being manufactured. And what's needed, if I could say it again, is that people who are actually very similar are taught to see themselves as profoundly different. And then, this inaccurate binary category replaces the hundreds of valid categories into which individuals should actually fall. To manufacture bigotry, the main nuanced categories that used to define individuals have to be rejected and they're replaced by some kind of new overarching single category, like eye color, or as you've already intuited, something like skin color. And for those who buy into this overarching category, the world becomes split between us and them, between the in-group and the out-group. Now, finally, the theory of social identity concludes with this. It says once people are identifying as in-group versus out-group, human nature takes over. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that tribal nature takes over. The theory explains, and let's not forget that Jane Elliott saw this in her classroom, people who are convinced that their core identity is linked to membership in some kind of in-group, naturally start to belittle and show hostility toward those outside the group. Putting the other group down is the way that they raise their own status and the status of their group. And it's the way that they bond. And that's how they build unity with the members of their own group. Now, this likely should go without saying, but neither social identity theory nor Jane Elliott thought that manufacturing prejudice was a good thing. In fact, the whole reason that Elliot did her experiment and the whole reason that Henry Toshfeld published his theory was to set an example of what not to do. It was a warning. It wasn't a how-to guide. If they were alive today, they would tell us, whatever you do, don't pick some kind of external characteristic and make that characteristic the dividing line between the good guys and the bad guys. Don't do that. Because you will generate hate, and ultimately, you will unravel society. Well, if you're here tonight, you probably feel that we are already part of the unraveling. Because right now in our schools, the, idea, the ideas that we saw in social identity theory, they're on display. But not as a, a deterrent to hate and division, it's as an accelerant. Our educational leaders are pouring gasoline where water should be. And the gasoline I'm referring to is critical race theory. Critical race theory divides students by skin color. It attempts to convince them that membership in a particular racial group is the single greatest way to know the essence of a person. It says your membership in a racial group is the key to your identity. And if you're a white student, you're told that your identity is that of oppressor and racist. Even if you don't say racist words, or do racist deeds, or think racist thoughts, critical race theory still claims that you are unconsciously racist. racist. Moreover, as a white student, you're told that any success you experience is not due to your own actions. It's due to unearned privilege, due to your whiteness. Now, at the end of this presentation, I'm going to go through several, several studies proving that critical race theory and the ideas it promotes are scientifically false. As part of that later discussion, I'll show that claims about unconscious racism are scientifically indefensible, but that's going to come later. Uh, Now, I told you already that uh, critical race theory teaches certain things to white students. Let me just recap by telling you what critical race theory teaches black students. It teaches that you are an oppressed minority and it says that you're a victim of societal forces outside your power. You're told that you have less personal agency than others. And you're also taught that any white student, someone you thought was a friend, may be unconsciously a racist. So critical race theory has now infiltrated every board in in Canada. And in many boards in the United States, although I will say that at last count, 35 states are outlawing it. In Canada, we've been very slow to catch up. But the negative effects, the negative effects, as they become more well-known, has meant that the people who are propagating these ideas have chosen to hide them. In fact, many school boards have now taken to lying about the presence of critical race theory. And how do they do it? Well, they purposely avoid the use of the term critical race theory. And instead, more often than not, they use the euphemism anti-racism education. And sometimes they'll use white privilege instruction. Of course, some school boards are so heavily stocked with true believers. I'm thinking right now of the Toronto school board. They'll actually openly confess to their agenda of using critical race theory. But as I say, Most boards of education obscure that they're infusing their curriculum with the ideas of critical race theory, and instead they'll tell the public that they're implementing anti-racism education in their classrooms. Now now listen to that. Anti-racism education. Be looking for that. Be listening for that in your schools. And remember, it's the same thing as critical race theory. It's critical race theory, or CRT, dressed in camouflage. What I mean is this, the the term anti-racism education is purposely misleading. After all, who doesn't want to be anti-racist? But but here's the truth. The ideas and actions promoted by anti-racism education are not anti-racist, but they are explicitly racist. Everything that CRT, critical race theory, promotes is promoted in anti-racism education. Therefore, within this pedagogical movement, discrimination based on skin color is actually encouraged. And if you doubt what I'm saying, I'll start throwing out my proof. The top-selling instructional manual on the topic, it's actually called How to Be an Anti-Racist, and it's by the American academic Ibram X. Kendi. That book and its author categorically reject the idea of treating all people equally. Instead, Kendi insists that to make society equitable, again, equitable, not equal, equitable, white people must be denied equal treatment and they have to pay. They have to be made to pay for any historical misdeeds that were perpetrated by those with similar shades of pigmentation. In his book, he states, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. Now, if this is the first time that you've heard a quote like this from Kendi, or or maybe you've heard books similar to this, uh, Robin DiAngelo, for example, you may be shocked at how blatant the anti-white racism is. Well, get ready to be horrified, especially if you live in Ontario. And for our American Viewers who are with us right now, just a moment. I want to let you know what can happen if you fall asleep at the switch. If, if as parents, you don't stand up for the rights of your own kids. Because right now, in my province, the province of Ontario, all of Kendi's ideas are going to be forced into every classroom with the passage of a new bill, Bill 16. Bill 16 is a provincial bill. uh, At the level of the province, that's where education is handled. And Bill 16, for those who haven't heard of it, it's a repackaging of another bill, Bill 67, again, an Ontario education bill. Now, that earlier bill, Bill 67, died on the order table when the provincial election took place back in June of 2020. But now Bill 16, this proposed new law known as the Racial Equity in the Education System Act, is back and it's already passed first reading. Now, as I told you, for Kendi, discriminating against whites is not racist. That's what he says. He says it's anti-racist. And we see that same warped definition applied in Bill C-16, or I'm sorry, Bill 16. Uh, Listen, I've got some quotes here. Listen to how anti-racism is defined in this bill. Anti-racism is, quote, the policy of opposing racism that includes anti-Indigenous racism anti-black racism, anti-Asian Asian racism, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. Now, in that definition, did you hear which group, which racial group, is excluded? You see, under this new law, it will be perfectly fine to be aggressively racist, as long as it's against white people. This new bill also makes the case that whites can be accused of racism, even if there's no external proof. As defined in this bill, and this is exactly what CRT claims, by the way, racism can be completely subconscious or unconscious. It's written right into the bill. I'm not sure, but in fact, this may be the first piece of legislation in the history of Ontario to say that mind reading, not a person's actions, can be used to condemn them guilty. And as I hope you're beginning to appreciate, this entire bill, Bill 16, is a salute to every idea of critical race theory. And if it passes, unity in my province's schools will be destroyed. Unity will be destroyed because this bill insists that anti-racism education has to be worked into every curriculum in every course. And this bill also insists that no one will be able to become a teacher unless they write an exam showing fluency and anti-racism education. Furthermore, veteran teachers won't be able to advance in their careers unless they, quote, demonstrate efforts to promote racial equity in their schools. Now, listen to what that says. To advance In a career, a teacher must actively promote this divisive ideology in their classroom. To advance in their career, a person will need to promote lies and ignore evidence. But in this presentation tonight, we're not going to avoid evidence because the evidence is on our side. The evidence clearly shows that the ideas being promoted in our schools under the title of anti-racism education do harm to students. And now I'm going to turn to that research evidence now. And in an an effort to keep things as clear as possible, I'll be moving from general to specific, and I'll frame my research in terms of questions and answers. So the first general question is this, does the research show that anti-racism instruction, as is being practiced in many Canadian schools already, does the research show that anti-racism instruction does any good? Well, the answer to that question is no. The research literature on anti-racism education goes by several names. Uh, It talks about um, anti-racism education. It can talk about white privilege instruction. But the more general category is diversity and equity training. So all those are synonymous So when we examine the research, it's going to refer to anti-racism education or diversity training or white privilege. But the ideas in these materials promote the same. And the research has found, getting back to this general question, has anti-racism education been shown to do any good? Uh, The research has found that diversity training and anti-racism education does not make people less racist. So I'm going to give you the best proof. There's lots of evidence, but I'll give you the best proof. And I'll also, uh, at the end of my presentation, I'll make it available to uh, Action for Canada so they can put it on their website. Let me talk to you about a great study. A 2021 study was published in the Annual Review of Psychology. The lead author was Elizabeth Palick from Princeton University. Now, Palick and her colleagues didn't do a single study. What they did was a meta-analysis, and we love these. As researchers, we love these because it looks at the existing research and then crunches those numbers. So this meta-analysis done by Paluck looked at over 400 existing studies. And their goal was to see if mandatory instruction in diversity, equity, and inclusion, that kind of training, that anti-racism kind of education, if it works to decrease prejudice and increase harmony. Well, after analyzing the outcomes of over 400 research papers, Palak and her team concluded, despite the bold claims made by people developing and facilitating this kind of anti-racism instruction, the average impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion training is zero. That is, it elicits no change. So keep that in mind. The research is clear that anti-racism instruction and diversity-type training does not do any good. So now we come to our second question. Does the research show that anti-racism instruction and diversity type training does harm? Well, yes, the answer is yes. And and I'm going to begin with part of the proof. And this is uh, particularly good because it's done by an esteemed sociologist at Harvard University. And again, in the best type of fashion, he's examined the existing literature so it's not just his study. He's looked at the existing literature on this particular topic. And, and let me give you the details. In 2018, Harvard sociologist Frank Dobbin reviewed the existing anti, or sorry, existing research on anti-racism instruction. And he had a special emphasis on the harm it does. That's what he was really looking for. And he relayed his findings in the academic journal Anthropology Now. And his article was t- titled, Why Doesn't diversity training work, which is a pretty damning title in and of itself. Well, summarizing the conclusions of the pertinent studies from the 1990s to today, Dobbin stated, quote, This kind of instruction activates bigotry. Field and laboratory studies find that asking people to suppress stereotypes tends, tends to reinforce them making them more cognitively accessible to people. So again, in short, this kind of instruction, this anti-racism education, in fact, activates bigotry. There's a strong chance that people will leave diversity training or anti-racism instruction more racist, not less. Now, I said that Dobbins' research was part of the proof that anti-racism education does harm. I said part of the proof. And here's some more of that proof. I've got two more studies that deal specifically with that topic. Uh, But before I talk about those, let me just refresh your memory. Um, When we're talking about critical race theory... It can go under the guise of anti-racism education, and it can also go under uh, the topic or can also go under the banner of white privilege instruction. So the studies that I'm about to look at now deal specifically with white privilege instruction. And again, with white privilege instruction, the idea is that uh, students who are white are told that their successes, if they come, are primarily not due to their own agency, but due to the color of their skin. Also, in white privilege instruction, uh, students of color are told that they don't have the same agency as others and that the deck is stacked against them. So when when I'm talking about these studies, that's what they were looking at. What, what happens when you teach students this kind of material? All right. So let's get to that. The the first study that I'm going to discuss is uh, out of a journal called PLOS One or PLOS One. And it was done by a researcher at Michigan State University and his name was Chris Quarles. And Chris Quarles found. And again, I'll be reading directly from the study. I didn't mention the date. It was uh, published May, 2022. So the research involved an experiment to see how introducing the term white privilege would affect online discussions. And these were online discussions related to issues of racial equality. Now, the researchers found that introducing the concept of white privilege shuts down discussion and lowers support for racial harmony. And they conclude, and here's the quote, mention of white privilege seems to create discussions that are less constructive, more polarized, and less supportive of racially progressive policies. Furthermore, they stated the concept of white privilege not only deterred supportive whites from engaging in the conversation, it also led to less constructive responses from whites and non-whites alike. So that's that's the uh, study from Close One from May. 2022. And now I want to uh, talk about another study that was from 2019. Now, this particular study was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General. And the researcher was Dr. Aaron Cooley of Colgate University. And he was the lead researcher. He had other colleagues. And let me just uh, discuss what the aim of his study was. The aim of his study was to measure the effect that lessons on white privilege would have on the attitudes of students. The study found that teaching lessons on white privilege did not make students more sympathetic to people of color, but it did increase hostility toward poor whites. And the researchers concluded, quote, learning about white privilege reduces sympathy, increases blame, and decreases external attributions for white people struggling with poverty. In short, these researchers found teaching about white privilege does not do good, but it does do harm. And so we, we look at these studies and we ask ourselves, Are the people promoting critical race theory in our schools unaware of these studies? I don't think they are. I think that what's actually happening is they don't care. I think that some of them have a financial interest in making sure that, that they can continue to promote these ideas. But the scientific evidence is clear. Teaching critical race theory ideas, uh, anti-racism education, does harm. Now, before before I leave the studies themselves, I, I do want to just talk about one more thing. And I had mentioned earlier uh, at the beginning of my talk that it's often said that there is unconscious bias. Uh, the unconscious bias is often attributed to to whites who, even though they don't do racist actions, uh, they don't say racist things, they're they're said to be unconsciously biased. I want to show why that idea, too, is just not backed by the science. So unconscious bias, to clarify, is the concept that promotes that even if you don't say racist things or commit racist acts or consciously think racist thoughts, if you are white, you are likely racist unconsciously. Where does that concept come from? Let me explain. The justification of that concept, that is the proof that this unconscious bias, which is often called implicit bias, the proof that it exists rests on experiments that were done using a research tool called an implicit assessment test. So these assist, these IATs, or implicit assessment tests, involve reading words and looking at pictures to gauge one's unconscious biases. Now, based on the results of thousands of IATs, some researchers have claimed whites harbor bias against non-whites. The idea, of course, has been picked up and amplified in schools across North America. It's even in Bill 16. Bill 16 claims that there is unconscious bias. In the Canadian military, incidentally, if I can just mention this, recently, uh, the Canadian military just put out its anti-racism training. And in it, it says, if you do not agree that unconscious bias exists, you are racist. Now, now, of course, that's a catch-22. It's a tautology. But the point that I'm making is, this notion of unconscious bias, even though it's promoted in our school system, even though it's promoted in legislation, even though it's promoted in, in our military, it actually has no scientific backing. So let me get to that then. I've said that uh, the idea of unconscious bias rests on these implicit assessment tests. Well, let me tell you what people have found about those results. And I won't go into all the studies, but they are numerous. Numerous. The numerous studies uh, show that scientific backing is lacking, but I want to talk about one meta-analysis. There was a 2019 study. It was a meta-analysis of implicit uh, association test measures, and it was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. So the researchers reviewed the findings of 426 studies that had used some variation of the implicit association test. And remember, that's the test that was used to prove that implicit bias exists. Well, here's what the researchers discovered. The correlation between implicit bias and discriminatory behavior is almost non-existent. Put more simply, if you took the implicit association test and the results came back suggesting that you have a very high unconscious bias against people of a certain race, Well, those results in no way correlate to how you interact with people of that race in the real world. There's just no bearing. And the researchers also found that how you score on the implicit association test can change dramatically from day to day and even hour to hour. It's completely inconsistent. But despite the lack of scientific backing, our schools are convincing our kids that this nonsense is true. So I've spent a lot of time outlining the lies being told to our kids, but I'll finish my presentation with an important truth, and it's backed by plenty of evidence. And this truth is something that can give us hope. So yes, there is racism in our society, and it is terrible. But the fact of the matter is, racist attitudes in Canada, at the level of the general population, have never been lower. Even in the United States, the sociological measures surrounding racist attitudes in the general population, well, they point in a very positive direction. Let me give you some some uh, places to look. The latest figures from Statistics Canada, for example, and the latest figures from Gallup polling in the U.S. They all show that acceptance of people of other races is at its highest in history, and this is shown. Uh, In the high levels of acceptance for racially mixed marriages, the high level of acceptance for racially diverse neighbors, all of them are at the highest they've ever been in the history of our countries. And there are many other survey variables that are equally, uh, equally pleasing. So we do have reason to celebrate. But to conclude, I will forgive you if you don't rush to break open the champagne. Because the message that things are pretty good is getting suppressed. And it's up to all of us to speak out loudly to make sure that the truth is heard. So thank you very much.
2: Well, David, thank you. I was sitting here writing notes and uh, just uh, really absorbing what you had to say. Um, It is quite a state that we're in in this country right now. Uh, you know, I was brought up, uh, you know, with my parents. I have one of my closest friends. uh, He's Filipino, and I met him in grade six. He was a year ahead, but there was a bit of a language barrier and never did, you know, even in talking to him. I mean, there's going to be some kids, you know, that might have made comments growing up, but uh, he was a close friend of my brother's, and the relationship was good, and I never would have considered racism being part of the scenarios in Canada, to the degree of what, as you term you used, have manufactured today, and and it is so sinister. But people don't understand that you know with this global agenda, with the Agenda 2030, uh, they want to the Sustainable Development Goals to remove all of our borders, to flood us with immigrants, and we've always been a very compassionate. And very generous uh, country as far as allowing uh, people to immigrate here from different cultures. But the difference is that once upon a time, those people were expected to come in and integrate and assimilate. And now they are no longer expected to do that. Canadians are being forced to celebrate and and, uh, uh, foreign cultures. And, you know, these are failed foreign systems of beliefs and cultures that they're now bringing into our country. And we're no longer going to be a beacon of hope for people around the world anymore that are f- fleeing persecution. Right. And and so to me, this is one of the factors I look at is that if we were under the governance of a country that was embracing, as I opened on, our Christian heritage, and that like-minded, you know, people were coming here and appreciating that, but but that's no longer what's happening. It's becoming a, a pitting of developing communities uh, that are sort of living within themselves and and trying to you know communicate but there are of course those who have immigrated here who are grateful and the difference is the integration and assimilation the learning their language the becoming westernized and and so even those cultures i have friends that are in the indian culture and one of them was uh, a neighbor and she was walking by one day and she was getting pressure from the older people that are now that the government is flooding Canada with that aren't willing to learn the language and then are berating them for not maintaining the culture in Canada, and they said we don't want to be part of that culture. We came from that and we wanted to live in freedom. So, what do you what do you have to say? You know, regarding uh, the fact that Canada isn't expecting people to integrate and celebrate. Canadian culture and society anymore.
0: Oh, that's an interesting topic. I mean, I, I sort of was more, um, <laughs> I guess I'd done my background research on critical race theory, but I'm happy to, uh, opine just for a moment on the immigration issue. Um, I have a good colleague who's at the university of London and his name is, uh, Eric Kaufman and Eric Kaufman has studied this issue, uh, in, a, in, you know, extensively and what he would say is that um, in terms of immigration, immigration works best when, when definitely the people who are coming to your country have a chance to acclimatize to the culture. It actually makes them feel more welcome. And I think that the the argument from compassion could be that if we really did care about the people who are coming to our countries, whether it's the United States or Canada, we want to bring them in at a level where we can make sure that they're taken care of, just like everyone else. And so when you get to a point where your your numbers exceed your ability to care for people, then you're going to get enclaves where people don't want to become neighbors with one another. Uh, Then you're going to see the systems break down, whether it's um, the availability of housing or the availability of medical care. And in fact, we are beginning to see that even now. And that's where hostility arises. And I would say that the majority of people in Canada, they, they really don't give two wits about your skin color or anything like that. Uh, but what they do care about is to make sure that we all get along. And so I think that uh, government has an obligation to make sure that they have immigration policies that certainly allow people to get along as best they can.
2: Right. And the reason I was bringing up immigration is because that is really what is fueling the critical race theory. And so for the last couple of decades, they've been uh, bringing individuals into Canada, especially under Trudeau's rule with the open border at Roxham Road. I understand they've closed it now. I'm not 100% sure of that. And, um, of course, these were people coming from uh, third world countries. America, you know, was their first safe stop. There was no reason they needed to come in here. We know that, but it was done intentionally. And, and so they've got, uh, I think it's six or eight pilot project uh, pilot projects, Count, uh, towns across Canada, like Vernon was a small one here in BC, that they were going to flood with immigrants, particularly um, Islamic uh, in immigrants, and then um, it, it was intended to disrupt and, and those reports are, are coming in. And so what happens is, is then you've got individuals who aren't coming in and expecting to integrate and in, in, assimilate. They pass an Islamophobia uh, motion which you mentioned, and then the Islamic community. I'm not talking about the moderate Muslims. Please understand that. I'm talking about wherever the moderate Muslim uh, moves to, integrates to, is the radicals have the time, the money, and the power to come in and push their objective. They, are a, they have a third of the UN seats, then they start pushing islamophobia phobia then they make start making these demands we want prayer in schools so they're taking over half of the lunchrooms setting up prayer mats and tents and you know uh sheets or whatever blockades to give them these demands and then you know as far as the hijab is concerned so it's starting to uh, fester right within communities and then they start pushing critical race theory that because we would object to that we're not allowed to have christian prayer in school but now you're setting up prayer mats well now you're a racist and we've got to come against this white supremacy and and so that's what I'm referring to as a danger, is that Trudeau is now uh, maximizing like a half a million uh, immigrants to come in to Canada, but they are coming in from these regions where throughout history, the West and these particular individuals have never been able to integrate and live at peace together. There has to be a ruling. There has to be a belief system in a country that's respected. And and so that's where I'm getting at this, is that I, this is a very intentional thing that is in line with the sustainable development goals to dissolve our borders and then create this agitation in the minds of our kids so that they will carry this on to, into the next generation.
0: So so I, I, I get where you're going with this. I, I'm going to tie it into the critical race theory because I see how you're connecting it. There really is uh, there is a problem when when a newcomer to Canada or anyone else uh, when when a person of color is convinced that the the white majority is out to get them that is going to create problems right and and that's going to unravel your society especially when it's not true I mean if we look what's going on right now in Canada. The, the the level of acceptance among white Canadians for people of color is higher than it is for people of color, for white people even at this point. There's a 10% difference, in fact, uh, with, with white people being more accepting. So as the media promotes this idea, as critical race theory promotes this idea that that there's this tension that really isn't there. It, the, the perception can lead to a reality. Uh, Give you another example about where this perception leads to reality. If we looked at what was going on in the mainstream newspapers in terms of their coverage of race between 2014 and 2019, this is even before the George Floyd riots. Riots. The coverage of racial issues, saying that there was racial tension. Increased at the New York Times and, and the Washington Post, the main newspapers, the, the leading newspapers in the United States, by a thousand, I'm sorry, a thousand and four thousand percent. Was it? No, sorry, a four hundred and, four, and a thousand percent, respectively. Now, it's Zach Goldberg who did this study. My point here is that this increase in coverage about racial tensions happened at a time when things were actually getting better in terms of racial tensions. So it creates this perception that things are getting worse. So if you're someone coming from a new immigrant coming to the country and you come in and at the moment you come in, you're just grateful to be in that country, but you enter a school system that says you shouldn't be grateful. You're not welcome here, which again goes against the reality of the situation. Well, that does, that does create a very, a strong case of cognitive dissonance, and ultimately it could lead to feelings of hostility that weren't there in the beginning.
2: No, and you know, when I'm you're speaking and I'm thinking about these things and how the Globalists have so been so clever about uh, victimizing certain groups in order to move their campaign forward. So people don't actually see what is going on. What is the purpose? Why is the government victimizing individuals? Uh, I mean, Justin Trudeau is white last time I looked. And, and so what's going to happen to his white privilege? Like you talk about white privilege, Justin Trudeau has had white privilege. He's had all the money in the world. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when they talk about white privilege, as far as my family's concerned, my mom's from the Netherlands and my dad is from England and their houses were blown up. They didn't have the food. My mom lost her teeth from lack of nutrition and diet. Uh, there was abuse. It was just horrific uh, so she and her four brothers and my grandmother came to Canada. Uh, you can in my hallway. There's pictures of my dad in this little sweater as a little boy, and it's all tattered. And you know the same with my mom. But when they got here, they were those immigrants that were so grateful. They were learning English before they came to Canada, and they were determined. They were committed to not speak uh, Dutch while out in public. And I said, why? Why did you do that, mom? She says, out of respect for Canadians we were so grateful to be here they never received a penny from the government you know my dad had a grade 6 education he ended up getting his grade 12 he ended up getting becoming an electrical an electrician and then ended up having his own company and nothing was handed you know to my family And, and so then you're, they're talking about, you know, they were the ones that helped build this country. And now we're being told that, you know, we're racist and white supremacists. And, and that's why I, with Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce, I mean, this was a Christian man who fought against slavery slavery and in those christian communities those are the ones that are doing the greatest good in community and you've got the filipino christians etc that are all part of the society now uh there was a fella ian in the uh, chat who was a bit trying to chastise me again a bit for mentioning 56 Islamic majority countries, and I provided a link in the chat to show that uh, the persecution of Christians in the majority of those nations—we're talking about being burned alive, and beheading, and raped—and um, you know it's very, very serious. But the UN refuses to say anything about it. So why isn't Justin Trudeau committed to bringing the Christians into this, the into Canada from those nations? where we would at least be like-minded, get them out of murderous and desperate situations, and those people would appreciate coming to this country and living in freedom. And and it, so it's just really shocking to me. And And like I say, we don't care about the color of anybody's skin. We care about the condition of the heart and the mind and i think that it isn't intolerant to expect that people come to canada they integrate and assimilate and embrace our culture otherwise why are you why are you here and and um anyways it's it's a, it's tough sorry go ahead
0: well no you you made me think about justin trudeau for a second and you talked about his white privilege uh well definitely he had privilege he was born to a family that had millions and even now he he has millions But I want to just I want to just talk about that notion itself. So I've I've made the claim that white privilege is being taught. And then I said that when it is taught that it does harm, it actually makes students who learn about white privilege. It doesn't make them feel more sympathy toward people of color, uh, but it does make them more hostile toward poor white people. So it it does harm that way. But let's just talk about that generally. Whenever they teach about white privilege, uh, they always forget. I'm using quotes here. They always forget to mention the success of East Asian Canadians, for example, um, or Canadians from East Asian ancestry. Because in Canada, and this is the most current Stats Canada figures here, people of East Asian ancestry uh, in Canada have the highest educational attainment. They have the highest incomes uh, per family. Far more, not far more, sorry, but more than the average white person. In the United States, um, Americans of Asian ancestry have the highest income and the highest educational attainment. In fact, Asian women in the United States now make more on average than white men. So the reason I put that out there is this notion of white privilege suggests that people with white skin will be able to or or have more success because of their white skin. And that's simply not true. That's simply not something that's backed up by the evidence. And I'll give you a really good example for your audience as well, because I'm someone who sticks close to the data. And here's some some great research in March of twenty twenty one. There was a report that came out from the United Kingdom. It was the UK Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. The UK Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, March 2021. And the reason that this is such a profound study is they wanted to see to what extent does your race impact whether or not you move ahead educationally or you move ahead in career. So they brought together all of these esteemed scholars from the UK and and they looked at at the evidence. And what they found was the evidence showed that geography, family structure, uh, culture and religion, all those things had far more significant impact on life chances than the existence of racism. So I, I put that out there. Uh, and this wasn't the only study that found this. Roland Fryer at Harvard, who's a black scholar, he found the identical, uh, the identical findings. He, he found that, in fact, it isn't race and the color of your skin that holds you back. Very often, it's, it's home life and habits. If we want to talk about privilege, one of the greatest privileges that anybody can have is a mom and a dad in their home. Two-parent privilege is really the key to success. If you've got a mom and a dad who uh, who love you and are in your home and, and they uh, nurture you, that is key to success. And in fact, you can correlate the success of, for example, Asian Canadians uh, to their two-parent families. They have the highest level of two-parent families. They also have the highest levels of educational attainment and income.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that where the focus should be rather than where it is, and with the Asian, uh, you know, community, we know, you know, that they're raising brilliant future leaders, and in in Canada, you know, they're teaching kids not to know what you know, if they're born in the right body, in the right gender. And it, it, it's just so diabolical. Um, David, what I'd like to do is there's a few questions that have come in. I'd like to uh, maybe go through those as, as quickly as we can. Uh, oh, absolutely. Betsy ha- okay, super. Uh, Betsy has asked, what is your advice? And I really like this question. Good question, Betsy. What is your advice on dealing with anti-racist and anti-racist bias, social emotional learning programs in schools is this a big problem in Canada as is in the U S?
0: Well, it's, it's a huge problem in Canada. Um, in the U S they do, as I've mentioned already at last mm-hmm. count, 35 States has, had outlawed the teaching of critical race theory in Canada. We're fighting a rearguard action. M- my advice, if, if Betsy has uh kids in school at this point, I would advise not sending them to public school. Um, that's the safest answer. A- at this point, point. Um, one teacher could could ruin your child. We, we have a case, for example. And, and again, I like to just stick with the reality of things. Um, we had a teacher in the Ottawa Carleton board who told her class of uh, six-year-olds that boys and girls do not exist in reality. And, and she taught this to these children and the children, especially one of them was extremely traumatized by this, uh, this young girl, six-year-old went home and said to her parents, is it true that, that I might not be a girl? I, I mean, how do I know? The teacher says, I, I it's how I feel. What if I, now I, I'm, I'm exaggerating here or uh, paraphrasing, you know, what if I like baseball? Maybe I'm not a girl. Well, the parents Um, They said to the teacher, stop it. The teacher said no. They went to the principal. They said, will you please stop this kind of teaching? The the principal said no. They went to the superintendent. The superintendent said no. They finally went to the Human Rights Commission. The Human Rights Commission said, you don't have any rights. So so knowing that this can happen and that parents have no recourse any longer, uh, and in terms of, of racism, uh, racial education in my own board, the Waterloo board of education, public board. We had a a trustee who is conservative leaning and she, she was getting complaints from parents and the parents were saying to her, listen, my my son is, is a young man and he's white and he's being told that he is an oppressor. Can you check this out? Can you find out what is being taught to our kids? about this critical race theory stuff, this anti-racism education. Well, this trustee, and again, she's one of the few trustees who are conservative-leaning, she brought a motion before the board, and it was very innocent. She just said, I'd like to know what is being taught to our students about critical race theory and anti-racism education. What's actually being taught? Well, the other trustees, with, with the support of the director of education, Voted it down. They would not allow parents in the Waterloo Region Public School Board to know what was being taught about critical race theory and anti racism education. In fact, they vilified the trustee who brought forward the motion. They suggested that she had done harm. They implied that she herself was a racist. So we look at these examples, and there are so many, but we look at these examples. And we have to we have to admit the public school system is lost, mm-hmm. at least in Ontario and I think in B.C. and I think elsewhere. And certainly our politicians are not doing anything uh, or, or, or the things they do are, are so minuscule. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a sucking flesh wound or a sucking chest wound. So my advice would be uh, until there is a complete overhaul, mm-hmm. I, I don't think... Public schools are safe for kids.
2: No, and it's wonderful. There's so many new people on the call. So I just want to make sure if they're not aware, when I showed all those chapters across Canada, one of our campaigns is going exactly after you were talking about in uh, the West. It's called SOGI123, Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity. In Ontario, it's called the Win Sex Ed. And we have notices of liability that we've created. And we're serving every single school board uh, throughout the country. And we're having um, a major impact now because there's enough pushback. Parents are, we're, we're really motivating parents to go into the school board meetings and call out these books. And so because we're making such good progress with that, our goal is that because all of this is a Marxist agenda that includes this sexual orientation, which at the UN level is called the comprehensive sexuality education to sexualize children at the earliest age possible. That's the goal through all of this, which we see it happening to confuse them, world population control, etc. But then there is the uh, uh, climate propaganda and the critical race theory. All of these Marxist agendas are working together to uh, confuse children, get the hearts and the minds of theirs so that they can change the trajectory for the future of Canada, We are pushing very, very hard against the sexual orientation. We are gaining uh, ground and we're taking back ground. I say that the enemy is stolen and with that we believe that the rest of this Marxist agenda is going to come crashing down and that is the reason why we're encouraging as many people as possible to get their uh, kids out of the education system for all three of these reasons and more and then we have a um, homeschooling uh, coordinator, Doris. Uh, We're working with churches and we've got uh vetted homeschooling organizations across the nation, which is all on our website. And so we're helping people pull their kids out, and then as well while we're doing this frontline battle in the schools. And and so I believe that is the way the um uh seats, you know, bums in the seats in the schools, uh uh Register registrations are are starting to drop. There's a 3% decline last year in one of the Catholic schools in Ontario. It's $14,000 that a school receives for a child's bum to sit in one of those seats. $60,000 for a child with disabilities. So if parents pull their children out of a school, that principal doesn't get funding. So you want to take us on, us as parents, as the majority, go ahead but we're going to do everything we can to fight on behalf of our kids. And this is one of the best solutions that we're coming up with at this point. We have parent webinars every second Tuesday. We just had an amazing one yesterday and, uh, you know, trying to facilitate and educate everybody. So um, anyways, on that, let me ask you a couple of questions and then we'll bring this program to a close. All right. Somebody has asked, um, what would be the response to the argument that the Gallup poll showing the highest acceptance rate of other races being highest in history could be due to the current progressive DEI and anti-racist approaches. I haven't seen the poll, but I understand the question. I
3: just can't imagine that
0: poll is honest. Yeah, So they're referring to um, the Gallup poll that uh, now shows that uh, acceptance of interracial marriage is at its highest in the United States. And and the second part of the question was, they're wondering, is that because of some kind of progressive agenda? Was that what they were saying? I, I, I kind of missed that, Tanya. Is that, did I get that right?
2: Yeah. So it said there was apparently a Gallup poll showing the highest acceptance rate of other races being highest in history. Could it be well, due it, to it, the current progressive yeah. DEI? Yeah. So it's um, the highest acceptance. And they're saying it's due to DEI. Uh, and the anti-racist approaches, they're giving well, credit it, it, to that.
0: Yeah, well, then I would say what we have to do is we look at the trajectory. And, and before 2014, and 2014 is often used as a marker of where the DEI explosion happened. The trend was already there. The trend it, it was already uh, moving exactly in that direction. And now, and and so just to pour water, cold water on that idea that DEI is helping for the first time, we're actually beginning to see in the last three years, an increase in hate crimes related to race Mm -hmm. from 2014, we were seeing it down, 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 down. And now as race has become the focal point of almost every class piece of classroom instruction, we are now seeing that racial tensions are, at least in terms of hate crimes, beginning to have an uptick, and I, I think that that is what you see because of DEI initiatives,
2: right? And you had mentioned that in your presentation that it uh, it was proven to fail, right? That there was uh, scientifically, yeah, you yeah had, DEI had doesn't
0: make you doesn't make you less racist. What was making people less racist was. Um, the ideas that had come through the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King, and people were beginning to accept that let's treat all people equally. And, and here's, here's what works. So again, I'm a researcher, so let me talk about the research. Here's what we know works from a sociological perspective. And it, this is a work that was done by a Princeton sociologist and political scientist, and his name is Russell Neely. Now, Russell Neely he, he looked at why societies thrive when they are diverse. How does a diverse society thrive? So he looked at the historical data. He looked at the economic data. He looked at the sociological data. And he boiled it all down and he came, came up with this. He said, it's the reciprocity norm. He says, the reason that the West in particular has gone as far as it has in terms of its successes is it has embraced the reciprocity norm. And the reciprocity norm is this idea that I will not show favor to my tribe if you don't show favor to your tribe. And instead, we're going to let merit and competency decide who benefits. Now, there was a lot of fits and starts and stops, and there was prejudice. But but ultimately, we kept moving toward this notion of well, I'm not going to advance my tribe if you don't advance yours. And in the West, we did that really well. And we began to say, let's just judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, which I know gets overused again and again. But a fancy way to say that is embrace the reciprocity norm. Well, what Russell Neely found was when you start inserting things like affirmative action, diversity, equity, and inclusion ideas, uh, all these they call it positive discrimination whatever you want to call it suddenly you begin to see an unraveling of society and mm-hmm. so that's what happens that's that's the explanation
2: do you know Jim Aino's president of the Hamilton Wentworth Family Action uh, Council and he's also the Christian Heritage Party leader in Ontario and there was an article in the, in the newspaper, the local newspaper that said equity is missing from education announcements. And, uh, the individual, it's Mr. Chica. So he goes, in this piece, he states that back to basics rhetoric sounds like dialing back the clock 30 years and expresses his concern that what is missing is any mention of equity. Dialing back the clock 60 years to when students learned cursive writing, respect for authority, and were only given the score they earned would even be better in my thinking. This is Jim uh, responding to this nonsense in in the article. The real meaning of equity is fairness, where people receive only that which they earn rather than a socialist concept which aims for equal outcome regardless of effort. And then he gives this example: in a soccer game run by a socialist referee, every time Team A scored in Team B's net, the referee would take the ball and kick it into Team A's net to even the score. The result of this was that Team B learned that they need not play the game; instead, they could just play the victim. Team A learned that there was no point in trying when winning enabled Team B to label themselves as an oppressor. Nobody won; everybody lost. How is this fair? How is this equitable
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I just, mm-hmm. I just thought it was a really good, like a good example of well, when you're talking about this equity and you 're not uh, uh, you know expecting that, that people come to the table and be you know, willing to put forth their gifts and talents. everybody needs to work for what it is they gain in life there shouldn 't be this free pass there shouldn 't be the victimization and i 've always said, when do people really? achieve their ultimate when they're being victimized and so we just need to knock all this off (laughs) and not go along with the government corruption
0: tanya you're thinking about you're thinking as a sociologist right now there's really good data that's um, come out of the united states that shows that for example immigrants who believe and again who believe that the the system is fair and that they can be successful actually are successful and and so It's very important. Uh, Now, mind you, part of that has to be that the system does have to be fair. I mean, you have to be able to do it. And I think, for the most part, we know that our laws are fair now. Um, But but that perception is really important. Before we go, Tanya, there were two things that I did want to quickly mention. One thing that I wanted to mention, I said, you know, that I don't think that for most people the public school system is good for their kids. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who have their kids in public schools. And I don't want us to abandon them. Um, I -hmm. think that it's more important now that we do stand up for those kids that are in the public schools. They're, they're vulnerable, they're defenseless and adults need to be doing something to protect them. And that means that we actually do have to stand up and we have to with our feet, we have to stand outside of these school boards. We really do. We have to be in the trustee meetings. We really do. Uh, the, the, the world is run by the people who show up, and sad to say, most of us have not been showing up, and it's time, especially for, the, for our kids' sake. The next thing that I'll say, and the last thing that I'll say, is that we need to look for political solutions. And I think that um, in Canada, um, each province is different, so I'm just going to talk about Ontario. In Ontario right now, our progressive conservative government under Doug Ford has been just an abysmal failure when it comes to protecting kids. And so people have to begin to look to see if there's an alternative party that really will make a difference. Now, I know we always talk about vote splitting and things like that, but we need to get behind somebody who's willing Mm -hmm. to make a difference. Um, I've looked at the different political parties. Uh, The Ontario party, for example, has a a platform for K to 12 that would remove all critical race theory completely. So I would suggest that people look for those parties that they might, be, they might be on the outside, they might not be the elite parties, but we have to start working toward a political solution as well. So that's really the, the last thought from me.
2: Thank you, uh, because I was going to ask you, did you have any final words in closing? And and on that, David, I really want to encourage people to join. We've got something like 30 chapters in Ontario, and this is part of our campaign. We're asking people to show up at every single municipal meeting. We're asking them to show up at every school board trustee meeting until we get the results. Uh, because as we say, as we're encouraging people to make this mass exodus out of the education system, that includes private, and public schools, because the private schools have been infiltrated as well, as that mass exodus is happening... We've got single moms, we've got low-income families, we've got these kids, these most vulnerable kids that are still in these education systems. And so that's why our chapters um, are creating uh, parent groups and making sure that they're committed at, to be at every single meeting and to apply all of the uh, pressures to uh, express the liability that these school board trustees are, are putting themselves in because they, as an individual, not trustee Susie Smith, but as a citizen of Canada. If you are putting children in harm's way, you could be held criminally liable. And, and these school board trustees need to understand that. And as this begins to unfold and potential legal actions happen, uh, we, we've just got a young boy in a, uh, eight years old in Durham district and uh he came home last week saying that he's no longer a boy he's a girl because of what they've taught him in the class um i've got uh documentation that i was pouring through today criminal code offenses visiting with the rcp etc., to make sure that we get to the bottom to prove i've got evidence to prove that they are indoctrinating our children and and it is just so radical and that these school board they're supposed to be the protection front to our children, and they they do have the ability and the power to do that, but since they're not acting quickly, then we need to get involved. And several of our chapter leaders get so well-informed being part of Action for Canada that they are ready to run for office. And several of our people stepped away at the last election and actually got elected as school board trustees. And that's what we're developing. That's the future goal. And and I think it's an awesome campaign. So I just want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for coming tonight and spending time with us and uh, sharing of your uh, wisdom on this topic. And we're going to make sure that we get this out far and wide so that uh, people are more well-educated on what's behind it.
0: Well, thanks very much. I I really appreciate it. And uh, keep up your good work.
2: Thank you. You too. We very much uh, are grateful for for you using your voice and uh, informing others. Thank you again. My pleasure all right wow that was incredible i've been really looking forward uh to dr haskell coming on the show and talking about this really important issue uh so many people have been silenced out of fear of uh you know being called racist or being called intolerant and and yet uh you know what that's part of the master plan uh we have a reason there is a there is a a limit to tolerance and especially when it's coming in and harming our children at the rate that it is okay um terenzio could we bring up uh The image for next week. We have. I'm very, very uh, much looking forward to this as well. Pastor Matthew Tuella will be our guest next week, and he wrote the book. You've heard me talk about it often. The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. It is, uh, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate is back from the 1500s. He's going to give us some history. And it is, uh, it 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 just really provides the message that when there is a corrupt government, a tyrannical government, passing laws that are causing harm, that are in violation of God's law, that the uh, magistrate, which are, are uh, RCMP, elected officials, pastors, they must put God's law against a, a, a head of corrupt law, and that they must act on behalf of the people. I think you're going to find that this show very, very interesting. Um, I've been reading through this book, and every time I'm, I'm reading through it, I want to get on the Empower Hour and just start reading to all of you. So I highly recommend that you order the book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate by Pastor Matthew Truella. And then, uh, Terenzio, will we go to the Bible verse, please? All right, Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. And, of course, what Isaiah is talking about when he talks about freedom for the captives is for those who don't know the Lord Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior that are, are walking. And in, in, I, I don't know how people, uh, you know, exist without God in their life, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking through this time of darkness, but I, I don't have fear. Uh, I have a heavy heart. I have a, a heavy heart for those who are being persecuted in our very own country. I have a heavy heart over you know the fact that we 've allowed such ungodly tyrannical leaders to get into office. I have a heavy heart for for people in this nation and but the one hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. so I just want to encourage you um, that this is where our freedom comes from on on more levels than you can even imagine so if uh, I also want to announce that we have uh, prayer available. Uh, Sheila will put the uh, prayer email link into the chat. We'll make sure that's in the description of this uh, video as well. If you're in need of prayer, please reach out. Or if you want to make a decision and the Lord's been you know, touching your heart and you say, I want to know more about accepting Jesus into my heart, then I want you to reach out to us as well. So thanks so much for joining us tonight. We look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you and God bless Canada.
3: hearts will pursue it. You have a virtuous heart if you are here today pursuing freedom and righteousness.